You're listening to Ready to Real Estate, a TREB podcast. Hear stories, uncover insights, and tune into interviews on key issues that impact realtors and all of us. Join us as we discover how people, properties, and communities all come together to build the future of real estate. Hi, everyone. It's Jason Mercer, TREB's Chief Market Analyst. Welcome to a new season of Ready to Real Estate. Now that we're well into the year, we're back to talk about the fast-paced GTA real estate market and where it's headed. And joining me today is TREP President Kevin Krager. He's an experienced realtor with a wealth of knowledge on housing policies and obstacles related to affordability and supply. Thanks very much for joining us today, Kevin. Thanks for the invite, Jason. And you know, your presidency at TREB coincided with us providing a bit of an update on the, the forecast for the GTA housing market. And in fact, we bumped up our forecast both for sales and the, the average price. And a lot of that was based on, you know, very strong activity that it started in the second half of 2020 and then carried forward uh, definitely through the, the, the first quarter of 2021. Um, we've seen a bit of a pullback in terms of sales, but we're still seeing extremely tight market conditions. And I guess against that backdrop, because I know you're active both in the resale market and also working with, uh, with builders on, on the pre-construction side um, of, the, of the real estate market as well. Maybe just give us an idea, number one, of, of how things have changed since say the summer and fall of, of, of 2020 as we were in those initial stages of recovery from COVID-19, um, but also even how things may have changed from your perspective from say the first quarter of this year to where we are now. I think looking at this sort of period during COVID, I think everyone was incredibly surprised at the sort of brisk pace of market activity. The interesting part is, when you really think about it, people have been at home more now than probably ever before. And I know with a lot of our clients, there's been a lot of discussions around sort of what works really well in their home and, you know, where there's sort of room for improvement, um, depending on comfort levels as well. You know, certainly people haven't been traveling and people aren't necessarily comfortable to a large degree at sort of traveling abroad. So people are gonna be spending more time in their home for the foreseeable future. I think that was certainly a big driver in a lot of the market activity that we saw. People you know, upsizing, right-sizing, and making changes in terms of the type of housing stock they were living in. In terms of where we're seeing things now, I think you know, throughout my career, there's been a lot of seasonality in the market for sure. Uh, we lost a bit of that certainly um, over the last couple of years. And I think what we're seeing now largely is the sort of seasonal trend. Um, people, now that borders are more open, there is a little bit more freedom of movement. Um, you know, people are either traveling outside of Ontario anyways, or traveling outside of Toronto for sure. And I think a lot of people's focus is on sort of time with family, uh, reconnecting with people they haven't seen. And we're seeing more of the sort of typical seasonal lull. Going into the fall, you know, we certainly have a lot lined up in terms of um, listings coming to market. We have a number of buyers who, you know, have sort of said they'll be active um, in the market come early fall. So I think we're going to see a very strong fall yet again. Um, with the election, obviously, lots of uh, discussion around what foreign participation in the market will or won't look like. Um, but either way, I think there's a, a ton of domestic demand still, um, and certainly more to come. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You say that, that you know, we're getting back into the regular recurring seasonal trend because uh, I think that's a positive sign in the sense that it suggests that we really are gaining traction in terms of a, in terms of a recovery and a back to normal um, after what was obviously a, a pretty strange year to year and a half as a result of the, of the pandemic. And, and, you know, let me take it a step further because, you know, you mentioned the election and you mentioned issues like, um, you know, foreign buying and, and obviously, you know, another factor that, that's going to be coming to play again um, on, the, uh, on, on the real estate market, you know, fourth wave notwithstanding is the expectation is that we are going to start to see, you know, renewed population growth in Canada and certainly drilling down to the GTA because, you know, um, you know, there's not a surprise to you, I'm sure, but I mean, the GTA historically has been, you know, the single greatest metropolitan beneficiary of immigration into the country for a long time. And so obviously people are going to be looking for a place to live, you know, whether we're talking about the, the rental market or whether we're talking about the, the home ownership market, and it'll affect, you know, the, the, the need for, you know, new homes being built. Um, as well as a, a ready supply of, of, of listings coming on the marketplace. And that's not something we've really seen on either side of the ledger um, over the past number of years, really the better part of the last decade. And so, you know, maybe comment on that, you know, vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, the need for more supply and the fact that Treb's been really sort of banging the drum on the need for more supply for, for a long time now. And I think the idea uh, that we have a supply problem, not only in the GTA, but across the country has, has, has gained traction. But I think there's still a long way to go in terms of, you know, actually seeing uh, um, a sustainable pipeline of supply coming online to, to, to keep up with that demand, to keep up with that population growth. Well, definitely. And I think the, the reality of the supply conversation is, you know, it's not something where the tap gets turned on one day and the supply exists the next. The challenge really with a lot of the political decision-making is people are looking for the here and now. And supply is a much longer discussion and also a much longer process in terms of seeing the benefit of supply-based policies. Looking at the last you know, 10 years of my involvement at Trev, Trev has been bringing up this issue at all levels of government um, for at least a decade. And you know, very little has been done because there hasn't been a lot of political favor that comes from long-term policy. So, you know, we've seen sort of short-term Band-Aid type solutions um, at the provincial level in 2018. And, you know, this sort of conversation around barring foreign buyers by creating this foreign buyer tax. And, you know, effectively here we are in 2021, um, sort of in the, the midst of a pandemic period. And we're still having conversations around the incredible challenges in the market. So clearly the policies have not been effective. Clearly they've not sort of had the net net effect that um, people have looked for. And the one thing to consider as well is in the last year and a half, we've had zero immigration. So this sort of housing crisis that's now being discussed at a national level um, has become such solely from domestic demand. Right. So, you know, looking at what does the future hold with all levels of government talking about the need for immigration and immigration at a pace we haven't seen in a generation. Um, you know, it, it's a major consideration. The supply issue is certainly not going to get better. It's going to get far, far worse unless there's some really quick action on the part of government. A lot of the political parties at the federal level, all of them, in fact,
have talked about this sort of supply issue. And, you know, we have some parties building a million homes, some building 1.4 million homes, um, which is certainly a great uh, plan. The reality is supply is most heavily impacted at the local level. It's municipal government that deals with local approvals. You know, the construction occurs in a local market. And while there's a lot of discussion at the federal level, it really needs to drill down through all three levels of government and, you know, look at policies that will cut red tape, will incentivize municipalities to move the development process along. Uh, otherwise, we're going to be discussing this for the next decade. You know, it's a, a situation that hopefully we can solve in my lifetime. At the speed we're moving now, we'd be lucky to solve it in my children's lifetime. And if it keeps getting kicked down the, down the road, my grandkids will be talking about this. Yeah, I don't disagree. And I mean, you think about the sort of the, the, the political life cycle and, you know, usually we're talking about, you know, a four-year term, sometimes less. Uh, and, and so I, I think that goes a long way to explain why, you know, when we've seen very tight market conditions and double digit price growth, like, you know, obviously we're seeing it now. And, and that's one of the reasons why housing has come to the forefront in terms of the, the, the federal election campaign. We saw it back in 2015 and 2016. Um, and, and that's why we saw, you know, more Band-Aid solutions coming online, whether you're talking about a foreign buyer tax, or whether you're talking about, you know, successive changes to, to, uh, to mortgage lending. And, you know, part of the reason is, is supply is really hard. And I think you hit the nail on the head that, you know, it's, it's one thing for the prime minister or would-be prime ministers to, to campaign saying we're going to build X or we're going to build Y. Um, but it, I, I don't think a lot of people understand that, you know, in a lot of cases, it's not within the, the, the federal party's jurisdiction to, to undertake that on their own. Uh, yes. I mean, you know, they certainly have carrots and sticks that could incentivize, you know, other other levels of government, whether it be provincial or local, to, to get on board with this notion of bringing on supply. But, you know, ultimately, you know, the Planning Act, the provincial policy statement, um, that's administered by the provincial government. And then, you know, obviously, the, the municipal governments are, are left to deal with that on a case-by-case -case basis. And, you know, in a, in a previous podcast last season, you know, we talked about this notion of the, the missing middle and, uh, and looking at ways to, to bring a greater diversity of, of, of housing types and supply online in existing neighborhoods uh, within the city of Toronto. And we talked to, to Councillor Brad Bradford and you know, he is taking on one of those case studies within his ward out Beaches Way. Um, you know, one of the points that he made is that you know, you're basically going through the same hoops for a 50-story condominium apartment um, as you would to put in a fourplex in an existing neighborhood. And, and I know that, you know, you, you've dealt with the development of, of new housing on, on various scales. Um, I, I'd be interested to hear your sort of take on the, on the current development approval process in the city of Toronto and, and, and where there'd be room for improvement. Well, I think NIMBYism is a major concern and sort of occurring political favor is the other. You know, if a building's built today, once that land's developed and once the sort of height is achieved, that's it. There's not an opportunity to say, whoops, we made a mistake. And, you know, the 10 stories that we knocked off that building or the 20 stories we knocked off that building, you know, we made a mistake and we now think we should add those 10 or 20 stories. Once the building's built and turned over, that's a density opportunity that is gone forever. Right. The interesting part is 
to bring a new building to market, you're looking at, and you know, I'm gonna be crucified for this response because everyone's gonna say it's a, a vast underestimate. But if <laughs> things are aligned, you're looking at a minimum four-year process, potentially five, to basically develop and complete. The interesting part is if you're adding 20 stories in the construction process, it takes an additional 20 weeks. So this is where the balance of density is incredibly important. You know, I certainly don't think we should be a, a city of pin towers. Um, it, it's not sort of working within the landscape of Toronto and, you know, I think would be disastrous. But the reality is we have highly transited sites that are available and they go through multi-year battles. The developer comes with a plan that is completely unrealistic in terms of height. And then there's this sort of, you know, public play uh, where the building gets knocked down to a smaller size. The reality is if the buildings didn't get knocked down to the same degree in each and every case, we'd have thousands or potentially tens of thousands of additional suites available in the city. Then looking at sort of smaller opportunities, I had a, a semi-detached property that I bought in sort of little Italy, little Portugal area of Toronto. Um, it was a single family home, but needed a substantial overhaul. Uh, gutted the property, went for um, permit and approval of the city, and to convert what was a single family home into three suites was gonna trigger substantial development charges. So to add in you know, a main floor suite and a basement suite, the basement suite was probably with all the approval costs gonna bring in additional $40,000 in city charges. So you end up with a duplex. And again, there's a suite that easily could have fit into the neighborhood, didn't sort of overly tax the infrastructure that existed, but the business case wasn't there to pay the fees to add this other suite. It would take a number of years to pay it off. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And, and, and I really like how you kind of, you know, went from that sort of traditional style of development, whether you're talking about a mid-rise or, or high-rise and, and, and kind of drilled down to, you know, what the art of possible, I guess, could be, uh, arguably, in a lot of neighborhoods throughout the city where, you know, you, you don't need to be talking about, you know, what's going to happen if we add, you know, 250 to, to 500 units in, in, in a couple of towers on, on like a, a major intersection, but also like, why is it so difficult to convert, say, a strip of, say, traditional single family, a detached or semi-detached homes and, and put in some townhomes or put mm -hmm. in some plexes where essentially the look and feel on the street is very consistent. Yeah, it would be the same or better than it is right now. You might be improving the look because, you know, if, if, if homes are have aged and they haven't aged well and, and, uh, and, and that type of thing, yet, you know, there, you, there's still a lot of friction. There's still a lot of pushback in the neighborhood. And it, it always kind of confused me because essentially if you're, if you're able to get a little bit more density, that tends to lift the property values uh, of, of existing single-family homes around you as well. Well, most definitely change is always challenging in any part of life and I think when you have you know strong neighborhoods especially with residents that have long histories there you know change is challenging I think from a government perspective this is why we have government you know government's there to look out for the good of many 
um, as opposed to you know the good of a very small few. And that's where we sort of rely on our government to operate in the best interests of our city um, to move it forward. Yeah, I agree. And you know, it, it's interesting. We talked about the you know development charges and, and some of the impediments to to, to getting a you know a, a more diverse supply, a more innovative supply um, online. But of course, you know, an, another impediment to people listing their homes for sale, forget about, you know, building new uh, right now, but just, you know, getting back to a level of new listings that we were more accustomed to 10 years ago um, is, is the land transfer tax. And then especially in the city of Toronto, when you're talking about, you know, two taxes and the, and the, and the prospects of, of that, you know, tax increasing in some brackets, uh, you know, both both you know, you and I have had the discussions with city officials and uh, and elected officials, uh, you know, about that uh, about that issue. But you know, maybe share some of your thoughts on you know the, the the land transfer tax and the potential for you know additional brackets and what have you as you move forward. And you know, especially through that lens of supply, because I mean, you know, we found through research that it's a it's a substantial impediment to convincing people to right size to get into the type of home that 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 meets their needs. Well, when you look at Toronto being the only municipality with two land transfer taxes, over and above the fact that Toronto is an incredibly expensive city to begin with, it's a massive barrier. You know, we have clients who we meet with that are sort of looking at going from a larger home where they've raised their family into potentially a smaller home and then eventually to a condo. And when we've sat down and worked through the math, we've sort of said, it really makes sense for you to stay as long as possible in this house until that really is not a possibility. And then look at the opportunity of a condo, sort of skip that interim step because you're eroding equity each time, you know, paying a land transfer tax that provides absolutely no value to you as the person paying. And that's really one of the biggest issues. The secondary issue is, we know it's a barrier and government at all levels, specifically the city of Toronto, have talked about the challenges of affordability in our market. Then there was a discussion of sort of a, a luxury tax on properties, $2 million or more. The reality is for a detached home, 1.7 million is very much the average. So you're not looking at a property that's you know, three, four, or five times what an average Torontonian is living in. You're looking at a property that is very much in range of probably 25% or more of our market. So, you know, it creates yet another barrier um, and erodes affordability even further. You know, we have clients who, for example, parents and their child who bought a duplex property together. They were concerned that their child was never going to be able to get into the market. This provided an opportunity for sort of co-living. Um, but again, because it's a slightly larger property, it sort of pushes into that two plus million dollar range. And, you know, as lovely as the house is, I certainly wouldn't describe it as a luxury property. So I think that that sort of whole policy is incredibly misguided. And I think it's really the wrong focus looking at real estate for every possible revenue tool, it may only affect the people who are transacting at that point in time. So maybe that's the political rationale, but it's certainly not 
adding to or creating some level of affordability. Yeah, I think, and, 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 and I want to touch on one of the points you made, because on the one hand, you have the, the city of Toronto saying, look, we need additional revenue, and, and, and we're going to uh, get that revenue from, you know, the quote unquote luxury, uh, you know, home price bracket, home, home transaction bracket. But on the other side, you know, they recently released the results of, of a study that really dovetailed with the study that Trev had done a few years ago, looking at, you know, the number of empty bedrooms. Uh, in the in the city of Toronto, and you can broaden the scope out to the GTA, and it got exactly to the point where you know there's a lot of people who <clears throat> aren't moving, but they're not moving because it'll cost them a lot of money to move, and then B, you know, there's nothing really for them to move into, especially if they're not going to uproot and move to a totally different part um, of, the, of the of the city. And I, and I I always found it interesting because you know well it was a good study and a good follow up to the work that Trevitt had done for it by Cancia. Uh, a few years ago, it also contradicted, um, you know, a couple of policy directions. Number one, you know, the land transfer tax, but number two, the inability to see a ready supply of, of housing coming online. And, you know, maybe I'll just broaden the scope a bit, you know, as we're getting close to the end of, of, uh, of our talk today. But um, I've also thought about housing from a broader economic development perspective. And so, you know, we talk about immigration and the GTA and, and broader Greater Golden Horseshoe being the, the single greatest beneficiary of that, you know, movement of population into Canada. But there's there's a reason why they move uh, uh, to, to our part of the world. And that's because we're creating, you know, jobs across a diversity of different sectors. We have that cultural diversity in that as well. Um, but my concern would be there, there'll come a tipping point where as, as good as, as, as the GTA and GGH look as a place to live and a, and, a, and a place to put down roots, if it becomes too unaffordable, if you don't think you're gonna be able to find, you know, the type of house that's gonna meet your needs um, and you're gonna be able to, you know, grow and prosper, you might start looking elsewhere. And we've seen that in the United States, like the GTA isn't San Fran, the GTA isn't, you know, New York, but in the States, I mean, you've started to see that movement to other sort of secondary centers, like the Austins of the world and what have you. And my concern is that, you know, over time, if we don't get this right, you know, the, the greater golden horseshoe suffers in a similar fashion. Well, I totally agree. Um, when you look at Toronto on a scale of global affordability, that's sort of one conversation. But when you look at it at the local level and you look at it with sort of the employment opportunities that are here, you know, it's an incredibly expensive city to live in for sure. The challenge is, unless government really focuses to supply, which there is definitely an opportunity. We see that, you know, demand has outpaced the supply of product for a long time. And it's sort of a, a metric that's getting worse and worse and worse. We're very fortunate in Toronto that we have an incredibly vibrant sort of core. Um, so the center of the GTA, we have tons of amazing neighborhoods and you know, all of that's been maintained in what is a, a metropolitan city in so many ways. The biggest issue for us long-term, I think, is going to be transit infrastructure, further expansions on transit, and really figuring out how to unlock a lot of the roadblocks that exist at municipal level. You know, when you look, Bill did an, a really interesting survey um, or an interesting study, I guess a couple of years ago now, everything sort of seems delayed with the pandemic, but uh, 
couple of years ago anyways, sure. looking at what the cost of government fees, charges, et cetera, is per unit of new housing coming to market. It's massive. Yeah. So I guess the one piece I've never really understood is if the city is as financially strapped as they appear to be, unlocking supply deals to some degree with the affordability piece, but unlocking supply is an instant revenue tool for the city. And, you know, it's not a, a revenue tool that isn't clearly definable. We can see, you know, what development charges are, park levies, education levies, all of these things on a per development basis. And I, I guess it's sort of a, a bit of sort of shooting themselves in the foot by not proceeding to unlock supply and therefore bolster revenues. Yeah, and, and I think that's a good point to end off on because, you know, I think we've come a long way over the last, you know, five years or so since we saw the fair housing plan uh, get announced and the OSPE stress test and, and what have you, because, you know, back in 2015 or 2016, when we were talking about supply, you had a lot of public figures that were saying, well, that's just a red herring. You know, that, that, that's this Trev not wanting this tax or, 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 or that tax. But now um, I think it's a positive that we have, you know, representatives from all levels of government uh, and not only in, you know, the GTA in Ontario, but across the country acknowledging that, you know, we have a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. Um, and, and obviously the next step is, uh, is, is how we're going to deal with it, actually seeing more houses on the ground. And so, you know, obviously we'll continue to, to push forward and, 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 and certainly, you know, present ideas to policymakers at different levels. So, you know, with that, I want to thank you, Kevin, for, for taking part in the, in the podcast today. And I, I want to thank everyone um, that's, uh, that's listening as well. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, we have more coming for you. We have episodes on marketing, an elections podcast, and more. So please subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Thanks very much. That's it for us. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website, treb.ca. That's T-R-R-E-B to find market insights and more. This has been another episode of Ready to Real Estate and thank you for tuning in.